Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men Podcast, a show inspiring men to be mindful about their lives. Each week, we'll dive into a range of topics that matter to men and hear from everyday people doing extraordinary things. So if you love the show, please give it a five-star rating and share it with your mates. Now, before we get into this week's episode, please note that some of the content may trigger you. And if this happens, please reach out to your support networks. It's really important. If you can't get enough of Mindful Men, head over to our website. It's www.mindful-men.com.au. Find the show notes and the links to our socials there. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's get mindful. G'day guys and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men podcast. I'm your host Simon Rennie and today we're getting mindful about breaking free from relationships that are holding us back. And today we're doing this in a bit of a unique way. We're going to be talking about patriarchy within the context of a living in a cult, sect, family and group type of environment. And joining me for today's discussion, I've got Rosie Rasmussen from here on the Sunshine Coast. How are you going, Rosie? Really well. Going good, Simon. That was good to hear. And it's good to talk to uh, other Sunshine Coast locals. I do this with people across the world. So it's nice to have some local content. Oh, right off the bat, I'm going to open up to something a little bit different. What's your favorite part about living on a sunny coast? Oh, I just love the fact that it's not very far and you can get to see the water and see the whales happening. And, you know, that whole beauty that we have at our fingertips is pretty precious. Have you been out doing any of the whale watching at the moment? Haven't been out there doing it. I had one of my clients say yesterday they got to see them on the walks of a morning. So, yep, next week. Hopefully they're still there for me. <laughs> I haven't done it yet, but it sounds really exciting. I've been listening to the radio and they're talking about it every day and it sounds like there's it's a bumper season, so it's yeah. on my to-do list. So hopefully, if not this season, I'll take the kids out next season. I've got two little ones, so... One of them is three. I'm not sure how she would go on a boat in the yep. middle of the ocean. So maybe next year. But we can sit here and talk about whales all day and the Sunshine Coast. I do love it for that exact same reason, being so close to the beach, but also the hinterland as well. But to introduce you to our, our audience, you're a mum and a fiancé. You're a mindfulness and Enneagram mentor. I hope I said Enneagram correctly. It's a hard word to pronounce. And you're also the business owner of Awake, Aware, Mindful. And so I love talking to mindfulness-based practitioners as well. So I'm going to start off with a question around... What does it mean to you to be mindful? For me, to be mindful is about having a choice, just not doing life habitually. So that's the biggest thing about mindfulness in my world is the choice that we now have. I love how you said not living life habitually. And I often look at mindfulness as the art of conscious living. I love that definition about it's about being conscious about what we're doing and turning off autopilot, which I often say to the guys that I work with is switch off your autopilot. Let's actually come into real life and feel it and breathe it and experience it for what it is and not live too far in the past or the future as well. Yeah. And I do think that is the big key is autopilot just governs so much of our world. And I love listening to, you know, Dr. Joe Dispenser and, and Bruce Lipton about all that, Dr. Bruce Lipton and just their definition of how much time we stay in that habitual living and aren't conscious of what we do. So, you know, I guess for me, mindfulness then is about knowing beyond that conscious thinking, what is it that is my choice now rather than staying habitual? And we'll talk a bit about mindfulness a bit later on and how mindfulness has helped you in your personal journey. But I want to take you through that journey now and and the listeners, because you have got 
a pretty unique story that a lot of us haven't really come across in our day-to-day lives. So I'd love for you to introduce your story and talk us through, I guess, what it was like living in, a, in this group environment, whether you call it a cult, a sect, family, whatever it is. How did that all come about? And talk us through those early days of that. Yeah, so I was born into it and it's a church that doesn't have a name. It's a, you know, some people call it the truth. Some it's the way the people, you know, it's what they call it for those of us who have left it, we call it two by two. So it kind of doesn't actually have a name, but it's certainly for many who are in it still see it as the family and for those who have left it see it more as a cult or a sect. And, you know, once again, being born into it, you know no different. So if you know no different, you can't do any different. And that was, you know, how my family were very ingrained in it. My parents are still very much a part of it, but my siblings have all left it before I did. But then I married into it. My husband had been born into it as well. So, you know, that's a big part of it is marrying within the group because then you're not unequally yoked and that's kind of a word that's often used. So it kind of has you very, you know, isolated or secluded in the fact that they are your people, they're your friendships, they're, you know, that's where it is. So you don't have a lot to do with the world as such and that was the the way that we put it because it's you want to be have less distraction So that, you know, obviously it's all about getting to heaven and, you know, living that life that will get you to heaven. So it had just been I never knew any different and it wasn't, you know, even as a young girl I professed, which is when you give your life to God very, very young. I was almost 10 years of age and it was always just the the plan to be good enough, live your life good enough to be able to get to heaven and so it's all about future trying to live in the future and otherwise you're in the grief of the past of when you've you know sinned or you haven't done well so it certainly was very hard to be present and that was probably one of the biggest challenges since leaving was about learning to be present but you were in that state of fear of future or grief of past so I'm picturing as you as you're talking about this like is this isolated from the rest of the community, like on a property, or is this part of the community? Like is it our neighbours? How did it work in your particular group or family? Yeah, very much part of the community, good people in the community. There's a lot of really good people within it. But certainly, you know, your friendships, you know, whether it was with school friends or Yeah, I guess even as I had children, you kind of kept that separate. It wasn't who you met with on weekends. You sort of had those times where that's who you are. And even when you leave school, you're not encouraged to keep any of your friendships from school because, you know, that's just at that point. So certainly not trying to keep you separate from being a part of community, but we just don't, in that process, we weren't encouraged at all to be part of the world in the schoolyard like did you know at a young age that you were part of this type of thing or is it just that's just what you knew and you saw your friends at school but you kind of knew you weren't going to see them outside of school how did that work yeah it's kind of one of those that you know I kind of were quite okay to be able to talk about me being a part of this church because it was almost a superiority and it it really you know I feel so I guess It's hard to find the word for that, but certainly a place of feeling more superior 
in that schooling environment because you were the chosen ones to get to heaven. So as much as you felt you were a precious people, you were given something that other people didn't have. So you wore that very, very proudly and almost a real sense of pride in being able to be of a small group of people who are going to to get to heaven. But I was quite happy to share that with my friends because you're actually kind of wanting to save them as well. So you're wanting to invite them along. And, you know, for some people, they really hid the fact of being part of it and not doing that. But for me, I embraced that. And I really was happy to tell all my friends about it and, you know, different ones who would come and have a weekend, you know, take them to our, our meeting, that kind of thing. So it was never something that I was shamed of or that I didn't want to expose to others. But certainly my thinking around it was, you know, now in hindsight, I can see that very clearly that we were a precious people, a very secluded, you know, group of people. And how does this, I guess, compare to different types of religions or churches that are out there or groups that are out there? Like how intense was yours as well in terms of how your thinkings developed, your philosophies developed, your things around ethics and, and around values as well? How is that different to what you know of other you know, groups out there? Well, I guess one of the, the big keys for me, once I started to see it differently, you know, when you don't know any different, you can't see it. But once I started to awake to it, you know, a big part of it was realizing the unwritten rules. Like in so many other religions, everything's very, you see it very clearly of what the expectations are, you know, the rules, you know, where the money goes, you know, all of those kind of things is very open. Whereas for the group of people I come from, it certainly wasn't like that. It was very much the unspoken rule. So, you know, and that's one of the things that they often pride themselves into that we don't have rules, but you know, very clearly if you aren't following the way, you know, there and the discipline in kind of a, a different way. So it may be that you're, you're stopped from speaking, being taking part. It may be that, you know, there's certain things that, you know, won't be all spoken to in, in order to not be able to keep doing or around that kind of thing. So I don't see that in a lot of other churches, you know, that people have a, a lot more less restrictions. Women within this group don't wear jewellery, makeup, or they're not encouraged, they're certainly discouraged to wear jewellery, makeup, have their hair cut, wear pants. We didn't have TV, all of those things. They're certainly changing now. There's a big change because they can't have that level of control over people or they wouldn't have a congregation. You know, people would be able to stand up in, and a bit more vocal now. We've got a bit more wide open but the thing is in that time especially you know in those younger years you just knew that it wasn't worth even trying to push against it or if you did there would be some kind of feeling of letting known that you've something needs to be different you know I had a fringe and that was something that was I remember when I chose to be baptized and you stood to say that I wanted to be baptized because you did that as a not as a baby as in some churches do and the one thing that was spoken to me before baptized was to really ask what's going on in my heart because I had a fringe so although it's not a rule it was still said you know we'd really like you to look at your fringe because something's not right within your heart so to take that step it's a serious step so you really so, see, that again, it's not a rule, but it's it's a rule. <laughs> it's an unspoken rule. What about with your siblings? You mentioned your siblings as well. You and your siblings have kind of gone your a new pathway, I guess. Do you remember what it was like impacting on them as well and like in that in your sibling group? Yeah, I know my my elder sister, she certainly was one that really hit it. Like a lot of she was kind of 
I'll call it in the framework, it was she was the wild child. And, you know, we often laugh about it now when, like, she wasn't going to be told, you know, she was going to push against it. So obviously I learned to become the good girl because I'm watching that happens in the family and seeing what's going on for my sister and the grief she's causing my parents. So I come along pleasing and making sure that I do the opposite. And that's why, hence, I we call it profess or give your life to God at such a young age, stepping into that knowing that pleasing role. And she hid it from most of her schooling and she'd do all those, push the boundaries with mum and dad the whole time. My my two younger, uh, one older brother and younger brother, they were certainly probably neither were extremist in like my sister and I were probably. We kind of went to the two opposite, the pendulum swing, but they all had left it before I did, which kind of left, I felt, a greater responsibility because I was the only one left with my parents and and being the pleaser in it, that made it even more difficult to leave it because it was sort of like once you leave it then we don't have those aligned values anymore as what is seen as or the discussion doesn't happen even though I still had a huge belief in God at the time and everything else like I could have had probably greater conversations with them about it but it's almost as if hang on we're talking two different languages now so we can't have those kind of conversations or they end up in battle and it's like there's nothing to to prove. I want it to come back from a place of kindness. Whereas that certainly changed. I knew I wasn't going to be ostracized because watching them having left and knowing mum and dad's love for them, you know, didn't change, you know, that they still had a, you know, they were committed as a family, whereas not everybody is blessed to have that experience. And I was one of, you know, my family was a lucky experience in that, that we certainly knew that we still did have our parents love but we did know and we still know that in their eyes we don't make heaven and that we've we've lost out and the most important the privilege that we've had that we've let go so there's no doubt that that's how and they would be quite happy to have that conversation but you know it's kind of does it puts a wedge in relationship of what you would once have talked about so to make the decision didn't come easy for me because it was hang on I'm going to lose that place in the family and and my childhood narrative is about needing to be the favorite so to do that then to make that decision to leave it knowing I'm going to lose that you know that childhood belief that I had that I had to please in order to be the favourite. So it took, you know, a lot of courage then to go, okay, it's my turn, I can see it differently now too. What was it like growing up with your parents? They sound like a very loving parents, but like in this kind of environment, what was it like growing up? Was it a really strict environment? How did you manage through that? And, yeah, just talk us through that dynamic parent-child and I guess broadly for the whole family. Yeah, I guess for my family, my mum wasn't born into it and my my dad had. So there was certainly I had cousins that weren't part of it, that mum was very close to her sister and their cousins. So I do think that's why I had a very different and why I feel probably more of responsibility in helping those who didn't have that. And it was very much having some form of exposure because of that. But at the same time, it's strict as, you know, we had a country upbringing as well, so there's certain things that come from culture as much as, but there was certain expectations that that you couldn't do or to even ask, like to even want to be part of something would be, well, why would you even want to do that? I do recall a time of my year um, 
10 finishing of year and they were having a barbecue and then a dance after and like because we went to go to dances and I remember saying you know that I wanted to go to this dance because I was professing I should have known better you know is that word and so I remember saying a lot of my really close friends were going off to boarding school so I really wanted to share in this final night with them anyway and they come back and said yeah look that's fine you can stay there but if you stay there we're not coming to your night so it's like the decision of whether or not to choose my friends and go there. Yeah, you can do it, but we're not going to come in and be part of the parents because it was parents invited as well because we're not going to come and leave you there. Now, they knew no different, knew no better at the time, but I remember choosing my friends that night and I spent the whole night in tears because I felt so much guilt that I've chosen my friends over my parents. So I didn't enjoy the night at all. And it was kind of, I remember sitting with the teacher just so distraught. And I mean, in there knowing no better, maybe that was a way for me to learn to, you know, what is expected. And that's a choice I've made. And so those kind of things were, you know, whether it's the fringe or whether it's the fact of choosing other people over it, it comes at a consequence. What did your parents say about you choosing your friends to go to the dance? Well, they just said, well, you've made it really clear that you don't want us to be part of it. So, you know, that's fine. You go ahead, but we won't be there to celebrate you finishing year 10 at the time. So, you know, once again, it was kind of, for me, that's how I took it, whether that's how they meant it. Once again, you know, all I could hear is that I have to make a choice here and and it's friends or it's the church or, or them, you know, in other words. But, you know, they were very clear about that's, way they want to put the line in the sand. But at the same time, it was, you know, 16 years of age, it was a huge one for me because knowing that I should know better that there was that real point of going, why am I even wanting to do this? You know, I've grown up with this the whole time, but I had, and I, you know, have been able to reconnect with some of these friendships, you know, since leaving and like really precious friendships that it was kind of at a real crossroad for me. And I wasn't ready to grow up in that form and let that go at that point. <laughs> wow. And so what was the the moment where you did awaken to the thought of something different for you and your journey? What was the, that moment, that light bulb moment for you? I guess there was a couple of those moments that really stood up in, you know, by this time I was married, had children, you know, married at 19, not quite 20. So married very young, always wanted to be a mum. So I was in the role of being the wife, the mother, all of that, had gone along living a really, I would call it a life that's trying to align with all that the group needs you to align with. So that become a very big part of our marriage. But then there was a time of us living a double life where if you can't keep up with doing it a certain way, then you have to hide living it differently. And that become a very much a part of my relationship with my ex-husband. And then there was the moment, and it's funny, you know, those pivotal moments. And my, my youngest daughter at the time, she would have probably been eight years of age, and I picked her up from school and I said, well, we've got to get home early enough because we've got our church leaders, our workers, we call them, coming for afternoon tea. And out of the mouth of babes, she just says, oh, so we've got to get home and hide the TV. <laughs> it was kind of, could have seen it every other time, but that was the moment I'm going, what am I teaching my daughter that it's okay to be, 
you know, unauthentic. It's okay to lie. It's okay to be able to hide. And it was one of those, could have happened many other times before, but light bulb moment and going, why are we doing this? You know, at the time it felt like it was okay because we weren't using the TV as a TV and that was different. You know, we're only using it to watch a DVD player or, you know, like the things that seemed to really make a difference in my mind at the time, which seems ludicrous now but it really did make a difference so in hearing her say that was a a real moment of going what are we doing what are our values Hmm. now knowing you know the on a completely different scale but going we're trying to be this we're this precious people this special people but yet we're teaching our children to be dishonest you know and I'm not saying that's for everybody but there's certainly a, a huge Part of it is going, we've just got to do what's going to be acceptable or what other people see as acceptable, and we can't be perfect. So this is what we have to do instead of being real and vulnerable and speaking it. So that was certainly a moment. And my other daughter had gone away to boarding school, and I was already questioning a lot. There was a lot of things. I was doing a lot of research. I'd been exposed to seeing, you know, a book that had our name written in it as a cult. So that was the first of going, hang on, but we're meant to be a family, but this is saying we're under the list of a cult. And starting to research, I went online, started to see all this stuff that, you know, we're not encouraged to to research naturally because you find all this and something that was we were told and it certainly had been brought up to believe that it had come from the seas of Galilee you know it was in the time of Jesus sending out two by two and that's continued but then when I started to do research it had actually happened in the late 1800s and it was like oh all this isn't adding up for me and then my daughter my middle daughter and she certainly wasn't going to just be told she professed very young as well so she was only 11, I think, at the time. And she went away to boarding school, seeing all these people in a Christian school and coming home and going, well, why are they wrong and we're right? You know, these are really good people. And she started asking me the hard questions. So I didn't have the answers, and yet I would have asked my parents the same things. And mum would have just said, well, it's just what we do. We're children of God and this is what we do. And that would have been enough for me because being the pleaser, I wouldn't have ever asked anymore. But my daughter, that wasn't going to be enough. And she goes, well, where is it in the Bible that we can't wear pants? Where is it that we, you know, we're the special people? Like, what is this? So then I'd go to my mum and go, well, you know, where is all this? And, you know, mum in her, you know, innocence and whatever and probably being put on the spot and knowing I was doubting and I need answers, you know, she goes, well, it's in the Bible, it's in there. It's in there. You search for it. And I realized then maybe she did know where it is and it was just her put on the spot or maybe she's just doing what's been done before her and she doesn't know any different either. So we could see that really clearly then that this isn't, oh, my daughter wants answers. She's not going to just be able to be told it's there somewhere like I did. She wants. (laughs) And that kind of had me start looking further and further into it then and starting to realize, oh, okay, some of this stuff we've taken real literal stuff that I don't believe was meant to be literal has been taken so literal. And by then we'd had exposure to, you know, other religious groups because she was at a school with Christian schools. So certainly been exposed more to other ways of thinking and going, oh, kind of in quite a controlled environment so that we don't ask questions and we can't think differently. So did this impact your mental health? Because I, I would guess that I'm going to assume here you've grown up believing all these things and, and being taught all these things and then to suddenly be questioning it, almost questioning your existence or your belief systems, did that have an impact on your mental health? Well, 
Yes, I'd say so. At the time, I wouldn't have, I couldn't see it that way. It was just like the shock and the realization of who am I? Like, what am I doing? And knowing I'm going to have to have the courage to, you know, it's all good while you're ignorant and you know no different. You don't have to do any different. And I love that saying of ignorance is bliss because you don't have to do anything different then. But when all of a sudden you have those awakening experiences, it's whether I want to choose to just avoid now and go into avoidance or whether I'm going to have the courage to be able to step into doing it differently. And knowing it takes a long time for me to make any decision that I have to be certainly sure. And it was said to me at the time when I finally did ring up to tell my elder that, you know, I wasn't going to be coming anymore. And his instinct was, well, what are you doing to your children? You're taking that away from them. And, you know, I did have it be that that would be my confirmation if I was making the right choice or not. But there certainly was that part of, you know, you're taking your children away from this. And that's one of the biggest fears for anyone in leaving anything, especially if we're a special people having this special privilege and our families not knowing any different because that's what they've heard before them is turning up saying that you're taking this opportunity away from them, you're exposing them to. Now we all, especially for I think even the women probably even more, it's about really that's our role is to be a good mum. So if we're taking them away from that, that's a lot on our shoulders and that fear that comes with that. So I guess for me, my mental health in that was needing to get more and more information. So I probably dived into doing the church completely. I'm here, I'm going to do this. And if it's really still not speaking to me, then I know I've made the right decision. And so I just worked harder, probably my way of dealing with any of that, work harder, research more. And my husband at the time was dealing with a a lot of depression, so I was the support person. So it was about as long as everyone else is okay, because I'm a two on the Enneagram, which is about, if you know anything about Enneagram, is the supporter and the, you know, so needing to be there for everyone else. There was nothing about looking at what I needed, just making sure nobody knew that I was searching. You know, even my, my husband at the time, I didn't want him to even know that I was doing the research. So it was kind of even keeping that and and all those things because he wasn't wanting to know. I'd try to talk about him, but he didn't want to know because that meant you'd have to make decisions. He wasn't ready for that. So when you made that decision, and that, you mentioned that phone call to the leader or whoever that person was, how hard was that to actually go, you know what, we're doing this? It was hugely hard because my, my husband and I were having trouble at the, at the time, you know, like things weren't good with us. And, and he'd said, I'm not making excuse for you not being there anymore. You know, I'd sort of made excuse for him for some time before. And he goes, you need to, you know, let them know. And I don't know whether he really thought I would have the courage to ring because that is a huge step within the dynamics of the system. But I just went, hang on, I have to, like, I can't turn up anymore. I'm not being true to myself. And by that stage, I was working with a, you know, a therapist and I had the strength to know this really isn't serving me. And and I often use my wording, Simon, in anything that I do that it's not right or wrong or good or bad, but does this serve me more or serve me less? And I could see really clearly this wasn't having me turn up being the mother I wanted to be, the wife I wanted to be, the woman I wanted to be. None of that was aligning. So knowing I can't not speak my truth anymore. And you know, when you get to that point that you know it's going to be hard, which hard am I going to choose? 
And I guess that was the thing going at that point. I'd sent at the time an email, I mean, a um, a fax to my parents because, you know, it was before emails because <laughs> it was easier to write it that way and send it off to my parents and go, you know, we'd had a conversation and my dad was very adamant about it being the right way. And I realised and, and he was saying, you know, if, it, if you feel like it's not, then it's bringing a bad spirit to the meetings. And I really thought, well, if I'm bringing a bad spirit, that's doing more damage and that's not who I want to be. And I was starting to see who I really wanted to be by that stage. So it's like I need to be authentic and I need to be true and I don't want to be known to bring a bad spirit to anyone else. So that kind of helped it happen. And then before I'd made the phone call, you know, shaking and everything else, I kind of felt, okay, and, you know, at the time I was using the word God, I need you to show me if if this is the confirmation I need by his response and I got the confirmation I needed his his way there was nothing in it of we're here if you need us and you know if you need to come and talk to us or nothing nurturing in that that made me think oh maybe I've made the wrong decision it was very very clear to me then that oh it's all okay if we do what we have to do and if we keep playing the game I call it of life and drinking the Kool-Aid but it's like if all of a sudden we're questioning well, we don't know where to put you either. And, you know, he obviously didn't know how to deal with that either. I don't hold any angst to any of those people in that process for me because it was all perfect for me to get to where I needed to go. But at the time it was a, you've spent time with these people for 20 years. I'd been with these people in their church congregation and everything else. And it's like, oh, and at the time, they said, well, where's your daughter been? She hasn't been here for ages. What's going on with her? Instead of going, you know, we've been concerned about her, what's happening, you know, we should could have reached out earlier to see because she was questioning at the same time. So I guess having her strength there too, both knowing that we had to make these big decisions certainly helped that, yeah. Wow. And you mentioned before that you, you spent a lot of your life being the person who's supporting other people. So what supports were there for you as you stepped out of that life and into a new life? I was very blessed and, you know, and I do say when I, the student ready, the teacher turned up and that for me, I had the most incredible people who I did, you know, some natural therapies with help with um, a lady who was doing kinesiologist who was just fabulous in helping me work through that, uh, you know, did counselling, did. I also had another gentleman who, you know, worked with me as well. Like I really went in search of that. I knew that I couldn't do it on my own and that was one of the things that I felt blessed that I had the finances to be able to get the help and I really felt blessed that I also that I was still teachable that I didn't shut down all of that that I went no I I don't want to be out of this and not change anything because otherwise I know the same patterns are going to turn up again it'll just be a different box that I turn up in and for me it was more than ever about going I want to be expanded if I want to grow then I have to look at myself in this I can't lay the blame anywhere else that that was for whatever the gifts that I got out of that whole period of my life, that had to be used to serve. The difference when I'd been the support for everyone else was I can't go and do that without knowing that I have to have my cup full as well. And that was the learning for me in that feeling of burnout, compassion, fatigue, for caring for everyone else and learning to change that. I couldn't do the rest of my life that way. So how did leaving impact your, I guess, your marriage? You said your your ex-husband now. Yeah. Was that the straw that broke the camel's back? And how did you heal through that process as well? Yeah, I believe it, it was because while you're on the same team, like you, you know, and we questioned between us naturally, obviously, for some time, but because he wasn't ready to go there and, you know, you've got family that are going to be disappointed with you and disappointed 
you know, often say when someone says that they're disappointed with you, that's far worse than someone being angry at you. And, you know, it's a, a huge part of, of where he was at. And, yeah, it kind of all of a sudden we didn't have that same alignment and I was ready for growth. I was ready to, you know, thirsty for learning. And so all of a sudden when you come that way, you can't keep growing. And he wasn't at that stage. He wanted just to continue doing life as it was. It was comfortable for him in that place. So there become a much bigger gap. And I left the church in December of 2010 and then, you know, our marriage kind of was probably the April the next year that I moved out and we, you know, tried to have it work for us for six months. But we had just lost that common ground and all of a sudden, and that's one of the biggest fears for a lot of people to even leave the church because knowing what's going to happen with their relationship because we have this kind of false security that while we're in it, we're going to be equally yoked and we're going to be able to do this together. And it's a real fear that, well, I might end up having to deal with relationship breakdowns as well and that's too scary for a lot of people and I understand that because it you know that was a huge impact but we were already having a lot of struggles before just people didn't know about it you know and that becomes more obvious then and you know a lot of people our marriage was one that people all wanted and looked up to and had no idea when it broke down that there was trouble because I was so good at wearing a mask and doing that whole thing. There's so much experience and so diverse experience you've got both in the family but also outside the family as well and, and this awakening that you've got. How did that impact future relationships? Now, you, you said that before, we said in the introduction that you're now a fiancé, but how did you navigate post-family life with new relationships and trying to find yourself as a woman as well? Yeah, I kind of knew that I needed time to work on me. Who was I outside of? You know, I was 40 years of age at the time and it's like, who am I? Had no idea. I remember going to a workshop and talking about your ideal life. And I went up to the facilitator and said, I don't have an ideal life outside of what my ex-husband was. Like it was about his life. And it was kind of a real, I have no idea. I haven't even thought about life outside of that. So learning who I was, you certainly become a really big part of it. And realizing if I just jump back into something, it would just be the same projection, but just a different screen. You know, it would just be, if I didn't look deeper and know who I want to, to become as the woman that I was. And and I guess I had the responsibility of my children and, and I had their support as much as a responsibility. And so for me, it was very much about not being going the each end of the, you know, the pendulum and being really mindful of any of my choices because I was getting the right help to be able to do that. But taking the time, putting money, energy, and time into who I am and that was probably one of the hardest things because women often of this church group don't do that like it's about how we can serve and subservience and it's all about everyone else's needs self-sacrifice is something to be really admired and praised so to actually start putting time and money and energy into myself felt really selfish when I did the program that I actually run now with my clients when I signed up to do that I remember getting a message back saying it's the first step of loving myself and that was a really hard thing to here. I remember being in tears because 
to be loving yourself was so against what we should have ever been. And it's a word that really struggles with a lot of my clients and learning to change that to being self-honoring, you know, being honoring to yourself. We can hear so much better. But thinking it was finally something I'd do for myself. You know, if my children needed braces or if they needed something, I'd find the money and you'd make it happen. But to actually do something for just myself was massive. But not realizing at the time that it was actually my kids that were going to all benefit along the way. Anyway, the more work I did on me, they all end up better off. So even in relationship, getting clear of who I was before entering a relationship was really big. But there's interesting how some of those things that turn up still just last week, you know, my fiance, he was went to make the bed and I was still in the shower and I just called out and said, I'll, I'll do that when I'm finished. Anyway, and he just stood there, he goes, but I can do it. Like, oh, oh, I don't have to do this. We can actually share this. Yeah. You know, just the little, little things that I had believed that that gave me worth, that I could run the household. We had a really interesting, we lived together for 12 months with our children together and, and decided after that that we'd be better parents living separately and doing that. And that worked beautifully, for has still works beautifully for us. But there was a laundry chute in the house and we'd put our clothes in and he used to joke that this miraculous laundry chute, he puts his clothes in, they turn up back in his cupboard. And it was kind of the thing going and it was all going well until one day we call it the laundry chute broke and you know he'd come and he'd said to me he said oh hun you won't need to worry about my ironing this week I got in and got it done and I went did you do mine and he went, oh no no I got mine done and it was me realizing then wow I'm still this patterning thinking that this is my role but hang on he's doing it but he's not doing mine so it's you know that bringing this old patterns of thinking, but what had happened, I'd been giving up the things that were essential to me before we'd met, having my baths, you know, taking the time out for me, going for my walk. So I'd busied myself going back into relationship, being the good woman, that's his supporter and I can do his washing and ironing and I can do it all. He never asked me to do any of that. And this is the interesting, never once did he ask me to do it. But my duty that I felt or my obligation in being the good woman have me turning up doing some of those things that I don't even stop to think about, you know, taking away the choice for him, but also me running myself ragged in order to make sure his needs are met. You bring up a lot about gender stereotypes and, and gender roles, I guess. And this is why you've got such a powerful story of, of, of coming out of this really intense, what it sounds like intense environment. I wanted to really bring you on to share that story for first and also how you, you work through that, but also around this notion of patriarchy. And in the work that I do with men across the world, you know, whether it's in social media stuff or the podcast, whether it's into one-to-one therapy, we're questioning this stuff all the time is what does it mean to be a man in 2023, for example? And what does it mean to be a dad? So I've got a, I've got a little boy, he's six years old. What does it mean for me to be a dad so that he can grow up to be whoever he wants to be in a way that's empowering for him and, and strengths-based and, and all this type of stuff? And I think one of the things we need to question is this notion of what is patriarchy and how is that influenced us. So I'd love you to share a bit about that, how patriarchy has been a big part of your life, both within the, the group or in relationships. How has that evolved? Maybe with your dad, did that come up with your dad as well? How has that shown up in your life? I guess, you know, there's a big part of it that 
you know, we take on as duties. And I often say there's nothing wrong with, you know, doing things for people that you love. Like it's not about making it be, oh, this is my job, that's your job, this is my role. But I think the big part of it is being able to come in and have that touching point. And this is something that Russell and I now do. And, you know, within my lovely new relationship is being able to go, is it still work okay for you to still continue doing these things? Or the gratitude you know, I'm really grateful that this is what you you do. So it's just adding those extra things and checking in that is this still working, that this is how we do life, that I'm doing the bins or you're doing this and is that still okay or, you know, and, and we do that here with even my girls living with me and, and having that in any kind of conversation with anyone. So coming back and just having those questions about whether this serves and I think another big part of it for me and an example of it was going out to my visit my son at the time and he was, you know, living with his cousin in a country farmhouse. And, you know, I'd go out and I'd normally, I would see my role as getting in and cleaning his house for him. Now he's a fully grown male, 19, 20 years of age. And I take that on as my responsibility to do that for him. Now, this one time I was working with my therapist at the time, which was a beautiful way of me, you know, experiencing this and not just going into thinking that's my role. And, that time of going, he was going to take his dogs for a run on the motorbike. And instead of being there cleaning the cobwebs or whatever it was that I would find something to do, to actually stopping and being present with my son and going and doing that with him, rather than staying at home, cleaning his house, having him feel that he's not doing a good job. Like I never even once considered that that could be a notion and thinking, you know, him taking on the fact that he can't do it. So taking away his power and instead go and enjoy and I remember it being one of those real moments of on the motorbike stopping for a moment and we watched the sun go down now they were precious moments for him to see that his mum was present to him not just cleaning the house and feeling that he's not doing a good job but actually knowing that this is it's all about being connected it's all about being present so whether that's a patriarchal you know my my scenario was certainly that thinking that was my role and the patriarchal thing but whether that's culturally whether it's society within the religious group whether it's within families you know some of those programs we've just taken on because our parents have well you know as science says says 95 percent of the time we're doing what's habitual so it's all come from those places so it's stopping and going actually is this still the way we want to do life? Or how can we be that we're on a team together supporting each other rather than it has to be either or? And, you know, I have had different clients that I've worked with and who, you know, their belief system is about if they keep a good home, then they'll keep their man. And it's like going that old story that this is where your worth is. Instead of us going, yep, we can be a mother. Yes, we can be a wife. We can be a fiance. We can be whatever. But we also, we're more than that. That's just a part of who we are. And if we can all just share the load and have the communication about what serves, and that's going to be changing all the time. Circumstances change in a household. You know, your children at the ages, as that changes, but it's like going, well, how can I turn it to be the best version of me? And I think a big part of that is when we have the conversation, it's not taking it as criticism. Like this is just how we can do better. 
no, this is something I want to talk about. Um, this doesn't, you know, this makes me feel this way, you know, rather than it, you do this or you do that and that's not okay. I see it a lot even with my ex-husband. I didn't give him the opportunity to step up and be a different dad. That was my role to be the mum. So I didn't even give him a chance to step up and do that and to cook. You know, it was just my thing. And now since, you know, a separation, the kids have learnt that their dad's an amazing cook and does great stuff. Well, I didn't even give them a chance to know that about their dad either. So, you know, sometimes it's about we just do what we've always done. And I love that saying that it's not going to change if we keep doing the same thing, but we keep getting resentful or frustrated or, and, you know, that doesn't serve anyone. And that's what I started to realise, doing all of these things to be the good woman, but there was resentment underneath it. That just discounts all of it. As you're saying that, the, the word awareness comes up from your business. Is this awareness of there are different ways to be in the world? As you rightly said, like a lot of this is from what you just knew, and this is almost intergenerational. It's from your parents as well. It's probably from like you said, your mum married into the the group, but also in the, in the phone conversation you had with the leader, I could sense some of this patriarchy coming out. Like, well, this is the way that it should be because it is the way it is. So why are you going against the grain as well? So it must be so empowering to go, you know what, now I'm in a place where I can recognize all this type of stuff. I can recognize what serves me, what doesn't serve me, and we can work out a new way of doing things. Yeah, and I think that is the big key is it can't change if I can't see it. So I have to be able to see it first. And then, and that's being conscious, being able to see what it is and then recognizing it, but then having the conversation around it and being able to then, whether it's with my daughters, whether it's with my, you know, any of my family or friends or my fiance is being able to acknowledge that, celebrate it and go, wow. You know, even when that shower thing happened and him making the bed, having the conversation with him going, wow, I almost thought that was my role there. I just automatically thought, you, not that I know you can make a bed and you can do it better than I can probably, but it's just some of those things to be able to see it because we've just continued doing what I'd always done. But I think that patriarchal, it's, it's putting that first, knowing that, and I could have so easily fallen back into that and be the supporter of, of Russell's pathway in that. And I was that for some time until I realized I've got to step up in my own self as well. Really good. I can continue to support him, but not at the cost of myself anymore. So it's not about not supporting people, but it's if we're doing it at the cost of our own vision and what we're here to do, because, you know, I've got to answer that calling and then having the respect of each other to be able to work with that. And that's one of the things in often in patriarchal, it is about this is my path and how do I, you know, like you come along to support me rather than hang on, what do you need and what's for you to do in this world? Because I believe we're all here to make a difference, learn to be kinder to ourselves, to others in the planet. And like, what are we doing and how can we support each other to keep doing that? And I can imagine your kids would like look up to you now and, and see the growth in you. And and have they said anything? Have they noticed anything? Have they have you talked about your personal growth story with them? Oh, look, absolutely. That They've been, you know, my greatest supporters, my biggest teachers. And that has been a really big part of it. The one daughter and I, we plan to do a, you know, we've got 
idea of a business together called Be Kind to Code because, you know, us learning about being kinder to ourselves first and and then to others instead of the cost to others. And and certainly, you know, I don't know how many times my youngest daughter has said to me, oh, mum, I'm so glad you've done the work, you know, because this is not how you would have done it once. And they would have been long gone not because I didn't know any other way to be a martyr and to be the pleaser. And, and in that there's always going to be, there's a lot of fear that's driving that. So for them to give each other permission to be able to change this. And my daughter graduated from uni yesterday. In, in the old world, that wouldn't have happened. Would have been married young, had children young, and that may have been her choice. But the thing is, she got to have a choice. She went back as a mature student, did her studies, and did it differently. Now, that's happening more and more with women, and it's, you know, may not be a big deal for a lot of the church women, but in our family, it wouldn't have happened. For her to go travelling at 20 and go travelling, get new experiences, it would have been her worth and, you know, she often gets, had been asked all the time, well, have you got a boyfriend? Have you? That was the big thing about getting married and having a boyfriend. That's your worth. You have value then if you have someone in your world. Whereas for her it was about expanding herself, doing all that, and then when she likes who she is, meeting the person who can match that. And which is, you know, at the moment, this is her learning that path. And my son, I can have real conversation with him now. It's not about me just hearing what he needs to hear or or me. And I will say to him, look, some of these conversations, they're going to be hard because you're not used to this. We're in our family. We've always done the silent treatment or we just don't talk the hard stuff. So I can't do that anymore. And if it's something I'd say to my girls, I also will make sure I say to you. Some of that you may not always want to hear, but I'm your mum and if I can't show you this doing it differently, then I'm not doing my job as far as I don't need to fix it, but I just need to bring it to your awareness. Then you do with it wherever you want to do with that. I really like that. And, and for all the any guy listening out there who, who might be in a relationship like this or know someone who's in a relationship like this, or maybe it's their mums who's done something incredibly different and, and changed her pathway, it's reflecting on that, recognising that and going up and, and having some deeper conversations about new pathways and about changing old habits as well and being part of this new collaboration as well. It's not just our kids looking up to their parents and saying, this is what mum and dad does, this is what I've got to do. It's about, well, how can we do things differently? How can we grow and how can we learn and and how can we support as kids support our parents and vice versa as well. I think it's a really powerful point that you've got there and a powerful journey, which leads me into your business as well. So you've got Awake, Aware, Mindful, and I love the name of the business. Give us a bit of a plug about the business, what you do and how you support other people as well. Yeah, so it's a mentoring process. So I have a four-session starter that gives people a taste of neural pathway development and a taste of, you know, what awareness is, mindfulness, all of that side of it. We don't teach meditations, but it's about neural pathway development. So, and then it goes on to there's either an eight-week program or a six-month program. Obviously, the six-month program is going to change neural pathways. The eight-week one one will give you tools, but it's working one-on-one with people. And I just love that because, you know, all my people that come to me are wanting to be expanded. They don't want to keep doing the same thing and want a different result. They're actually going to do the work on changing it. And I think a big part of it is we can't change what we don't know. So it's about becoming aware first, bringing awareness in, breaking through those habitual pathways. And then having the being aware then gives us the chance to be aware. And then we can have that choice and how to live mindful or how to live habitually. And we say it's not about using willpower and discipline, but about being able to hold the space 
that I've now got a loving choice or an honoring choice. Often if we go through discipline and willpower, it's all going well until life turns upside down again. Whereas if we start to bring those neural pathways from a loving space, being kinder to myself, what would that look like? So it becomes a very gentle process because there's never a time about needing to do anything different. I just want you to hold the awareness and to become the observer. And I guess all the change happens then by the observing. We're now in that place where we're conscious which gives it that opportunity to. So I've got quite a few clients around the world and locally, so I do a bit of both. So Zoom was our best friend long before COVID, so it was lovely. I didn't have to do that transition learning Zoom, always been doing that. But I do have a discovery call on my link tree and on all my social medias where people can have half-hour conversation with me, see if it's what they like and if it resonates with them or me as a mentor and what the journey into becoming more aware. It sounds really cool and and I love how you're going global and it's such a powerful story that so many people, men and women, can really gather some information from, some inspiration to maybe be mindful about how they're showing up in life and how they can grow as well. And we'll certainly put the links into the show notes for people to access readily if they want to find out more. But are you on the social media as well? Can people see more of you on social media? I am. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. I've just started with um, LinkedIn, so I'm still learning that one. But certainly my website at the moment is going through a revamp, but there's still one there. The thing I wanted to say, when I first started doing this work, I really didn't want to work with men. It was kind of one of those interesting things because I'd put them in such a pedestal. And the fear, and I remember being even told about going and having a personal trainer. You mean, you, you want me to pay to go and have someone to tell me what to do like it was like that bigger swing and then all of a sudden I went I have to heal this you know like I've got to see these men as being equal to me and and what I end up coming I end up with some of the most beautiful men to work with that just changed my world and once again learning that respect and to grow together and be seen as equal and they hold me in that space and that's been some of the most precious work I love all my women and walking with them because I get it but especially to see men who are turning up and going because a lot of people I work with are have come from very strict religious backgrounds in some form, a lot from the church I come from, but others and often we've had it somewhere along the line that culturally or whatever it is, but to actually rise with those men and to be equal with them has been so heartful and seeing men to turn up to be teachable. They don't want to be in the patriarchal anymore then. They don't know any different. And it highlights that we don't have to just see a woman if we're a woman or a man if we're a man. We can get diverse views. And this is why I bring people who don't identify as men coming on the show to share this diversity of views because that increases mindfulness, I believe, as well. Having diverse perspectives of the world and how it works can really awaken us to a deeper level of understanding about who we are and on the planet, not necessarily in our little niche of the woods or, or whatever. So, Rosie, I really enjoyed our chat. You you are an inspiration. I love always catching up with you. We're fortunate to catch up at the Hope Stories of Hope night with Kerry Atherton and I've actually got Kerry coming on the show in a few weeks as well to talk about her story as well so I'm really blessed to have both of you in my life now but the last question I'll leave I like to ask every one of my guests is to plug something that's making you feel good and the reason I ask this question is because we do talk about some deep and heavy things on the show and so to leave the audience with something that's making you feel good whether it's something you're watching on TV (laughs) wink wink (laughs) whether it's something you're listening to the radio a song maybe a book a self-care activity what 
what are you doing at the moment that's just lighting you up? So reading, obviously, you have a thirst for learning is a, a really big thing for me. But one of the biggest struggles I had was staying present, you know, coming from what I did. So, you know, having mantras that really help me stay present and one that I really love and I still use often is, you know, where am I here? What am I doing this what time is it now? Just helps me to see I don't have to go into productivity. I don't have to be in service all the time. My service to others is the beauty for them and the love for them, but my balance of loving me. So I think that affirmation and and I guess the other thing is just keep curious. I just want to forever stay curious, be teachable. One of my greatest things, don't ever feel that I'm there yet. Just keep learning. So that lights me up now. So I can and I will. Personal mantras and affirmations are really coming to the fore for me. It's not something I've always done, but it's something I'm tuning into a lot more. It's that little internal pep talk. And yeah, I really love that one. So I'm going to highlight that one in the show notes too. But Rosie, again, thanks so much for coming on, sharing your story, getting vulnerable, getting mindful with me as well. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for what you do, Simon. I really love your approach to your work and just know that that's going to make a huge difference in many men's world. And thank you for how you touch the world. Thank you. No problem. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode and I hope you got some value from it. If anything triggered your mental health today, please reach out to your support networks. Also, if you loved what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your mates. For more from Mindful Men, you can check us out on Instagram and YouTube and I'll throw the links to these pages in the show notes below. But until next time, stay mindful.